The Viewpoint, 8 to 10 p.m. Flipping conventional wisdom on its head. Songhezo Mapete on SAFM. Pagamile Shubi Majola is the spokesperson for the largest trade union in the country, that is NUMSA. She also serves as the chairperson of the board of Tricontinental Institute for Social Research. Born and bred in Soweto, attending WITS, serving as SRC Education Officer 2000-2001 year, she fought the administration for academically and financially excluded students to be readmitted. Think fees must fall, think roads must fall. It has been happening because of the likes of, among others, Pagamil, who's a journalist once upon a time. Some of our outstanding stories include the stampede at University of Johannesburg, where unfortunately during the course of a registration, there was a death. We don't want to dwell too much on that. It is a pain. Local government elections and uncovering, among other things as well, police brutality. Who can forget how she featured the Oscar Pistorius murder trial, the Marikana and the Marikana as well, as well as the murder of Mozambican national at the hands of the South African police, Mido Masia, or Mido Matia, I beg your pardon for the mispronunciation. Now she's fighting for workers' rights, and why wouldn't she? That's where she started, and that's where her passion is. Now being May month, it is as good a time to engage Ms. Pagamile Flubi Majola. Pagamile, ma'am, good evening. Thank you so much for your time. Good evening. Wow, what a what an introduction. Um, <laughs> thank you so much oh, for having me on your false. show. I promise you, it's, it's all on your doing. It's all the work that you have done, and we do appreciate that, and we appreciate you honoring us with your time. Thank you so much. Let's go back memory lane. I mean, this is not a space you are particularly unfamiliar with. You have always had yeah. an opinion and have always told stories. Where does that passion come from? Tell us what we don't know when we see you fighting the system on SABC or ENCA, <laughs> speaking on behalf of the downtrodden and marginalized workers. You've always had some energy and passion burning within you. Give us a profile. Where does it come from? Mm. I think it comes from my parents. Um, I It comes from my mother, uh, I think. Yeah, it definitely comes from my mother. My mother is one of the strongest, most courageous women you will ever meet. Um, she she inspires me in so many ways because I literally watch her watched her fight so many battles, and um, I think you know when you think of that generation of our mothers um, who had to exist under the brutality of the apartheid system, they were made of very very stern stuff. And I'm inspired by that. And I, I think that for me, that's where that comes from, um, especially in my work currently at NUMSA. Uh, definitely am inspired by our members who every day achieve the impossible, um, achieve things that most people would never expect them to achieve. But they do it because they believe in themselves and they believe in what in 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 what they think they deserve as members of the working class and and so that motivates me we're going to talk about the interests of the workers in a bit but i mean one of the things that many probably wouldn't know and i admit i'm one of those who didn't know until i was doing my research in advance of this engagement was that in 2016 you were honored with an award which was presented to you by the former president of mozambique Dada Joachim Chisano for your contribution and telling of the story of the Mozambican national who died because of police brutality, Mido Matia or Mido Masia. Tell us how we get to that point where your passion drives you to a point where it reaches that level of appreciation despite what it was in the first place that you were covering. And of course, you're going to have to tell us about meeting the president, somebody who's got a solid place in South Africa's history and contributing to South Africa's freedom and that he, of all people, would honor you that way for that story? It, it, I must say it really was uh, it, and remains one of the most uh, important moments of my life, a moment of extreme pride. And it wasn't just me. Uh, it was, it was, 
Pagamila, if you can hear, I'm just going to ask you to hang on a second there. Lesekho is going to sort this out quickly. We're just having a slight connection problem and delays. So if you can hear me there, Pagamila, just please hold on whatever it is that you're saying. I'm going to ask the question again. Um, for those who have just joined in and are interested in whose voice it is that you are hearing, it is that of Ms. Pagamila Shubimajola, spokesperson of the trade union, the largest in the country, the National Union of Metal Workers of South Africa. She has told us that she gets her fighting spirit from the inspiration she received from Mama, and we're going to talk about all of those things. I'm just sampling a couple of stories that I want, hopefully, in the 10 or so minutes that remain for us to maybe delve into them a bit strongly or deeper. Of course, in 2016, which is now the question that stands, Pagamila Shrubi was honoured by the former president of Mozambique, Dadaja Kim Chisano, for her contribution and in telling the story of Mido Masia, who was murdered by the South African police services, ostensibly because he was resisting being handcuffed. I mean, everybody saw that as it played out on our television screens. Pagamile, are you back? Are you there, fully connected? Back? Indeed, indeed. You, you, were, you were telling us about how the former president honoured you and the story behind that. Two minutes. Yes. So as I was saying, and I, and I hope you can hear me now. Yes. It really wasn't just me who was being honored that day. It was uh, all of us. Uh, so what happened was that um, the Mozambican government was so moved by how we as a country responded to the um, the, the, the injustice in the murder of Mozambican national Mido Masia, who, as you will recall, was before he died, dragged behind a police van in Davidton and then unfortunately later died in police custody. And so um, after that court case made its way through the courts and eventually there was a um, conviction of all the police officers, the Mozambican government then invited, it was myself as the journalist who'd reported on the story, together with the uh, National Prosecuting Authority, the team that led the case, as well as the senior investigator at IPID and the um, pathologist in the case, the state pathologist. And it really was just them uh, honoring the work that we had done and recognizing that had we not all played our role, uh, my role as a journalist, the investigators in investigating the case, the prosecutor in prosecuting, they would not have reached this um, decision where all the police were found guilty and convicted for this terrible crime. How has that shaped you? I mean, you were a fighter. I alluded to it earlier on. I'm asking this question now. You're going to respond, please, on the other side of the break because I've got all of 20 seconds. How do all of these experiences from learning from your mother growing up in a system that was in every respect brutal, your work in the SRC and your experiences as a young woman in South Africa and in all these spaces that continue to assault you. I wonder how it is that shaped the fighter that you are now as spokesperson of NUMSA after the break. The Viewpoint, 8 to 10 p.m. Flipping conventional wisdom on its head. Songhezomapete on SAFM. Please call, please call, please call Johannesburg 714-2006. Ms. Pagamile Shubimajola, spokesperson for NOMSA, erstwhile a journalist who would have been on your TV screens wherever you would have been for quite some time before making the transition. And, of course, she was always a fighter from her mother to her days in the SRC to her days behind the microphone. Now, a little less, if you like, in your face, but nonetheless a pain to those in the establishment, as it were. The fighting spirit continues, although it evolves, doesn't it, Pagamil? Yes, indeed. I think for me now, um, doing the work that I'm doing uh, has just, I feel it's, a, it's just an extension of what I've been doing for a long time. I feel, and I've always felt, that as black people, especially, you know, those of us who grew up under apartheid, watched the transition, um, we lived the pain of what apartheid was and how it destroyed our communities and how it destroyed us as a people. And so the moments, for example, when Nelson Mandela was released from jail, when political parties were unbanned, those for me were all very, very powerful moments in my childhood. I was, you know, from nine years old going up, those are when all those events happened and they changed me in a fundamental way. 
And so I think that's why I am so passionate about, especially about human rights. Absolutely get furious when I see, you know, um, suffering of any kind. And, and that is what motivates me. And I that we are so much better off than our forefathers. They suffered to bring us here. So that we need to finish the work. It's easier for us. So we must finish the work. And I think for me, that is ultimately what drives me in my work. As you are driven in your work, as you meet different stakeholders, um, different stakeholders on the side of the system, those with the power, those with the power to make decisions that affect people from your university days, community leaders and in community structures, right through to the echelons of government and big business, not in least in this case, for instance, your ESCOMs of the world. What is the one thing that as you have been fighting, as you have been engaging, you are picking up as a trait in the context of relations between those who are decision makers and those who are affected by those decisions. There must be something that you can tell us that for you is an experience or a fingerprint that you can come up with that says, for so long as this is the way things are done, South Africans should expect the status quo to remain or to spiral and get worse because there seems to be, to that extent, whatever it is, a discord between the interests and there isn't enough of a dialogue that is conducive or it's solutions driven. What is it that you still lament as a challenge in negotiations essentially in the country? Oh, that's a deep question. How much time do you have? Well, uh, <laughs> uh, no, no, on a more serious note. Uh, Fundamentally, our problem in this country is racial inequality. And unless and until we decide to tackle that directly, and unless and until we confront that head on, we are going to continue to have a crisis in this country. Uh, I, I think until we fully transform our society and our economy for the benefit of all of us as, 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 as human beings, but in particular to affirm black people in this country, then unfortunately we still have a long way to go. Earlier you played a song by Fela Kuti, mm. um, which, which is a song, it's, it's one of my favorite songs actually, which talks about um, the struggles of, of the working class. When, when Fela wrote that song, he was actually, uh, it was in response to the Soweto uprising of 1976. And if you listen to the language, he's, he's talking, he's calling out um, those issues. Um, it, it, the song is, is Sorrow, Tears and Blood. And what pains me is that I listened to that song in 2021. And it's sad to realize that the struggles that we were enduring, even back then, we are still enduring today. It's the most painful thing to accept that um, after 27 years of this democracy, mm. black people are still paying the price for apartheid. Yet the crime of apartheid was committed against us, but we are the ones who are suffering. And for me, as long as that continues to be the status quo, I have a duty to do something about it. Yeah, yeah, that that is deep. Um, perhaps I shouldn't have asked that question because, I mean, the more you spoke, the more I actually have follow-up questions. But I, I will resist that because I have to engage Mr. Aldrin St-Pierre's tweet earlier today. In fact, four minutes ago, it says, NUMSA spokesperson Pagamila Flubi is interviewing Duma Kubule on SAFM. That's a little later on. Listening to Songas Amabekla speak about the time she covered the UJ stampede. A mother died during that stampede and Pucks was pregnant. Tell us about that story because it would have struck a nerve, especially now at that point you were engaged in the context of motherhood in a very different manner than what you might have been before you were pregnant. And there you see at a university a mother trying to better her life through her child, her child's life and generations to succeed her. And she dies trying to access an institution of higher learning, a metaphor of times gone by, a metaphor for times since. Oh, the UJ Stampede was such a painful story for me. It was, even today when I think about that story and I think about how, even you know, this is why I brought up the song of, of Fela Kuti, because imagine in 2012, 
um, we were stampeding for education, and that stampede resulted in the death of Gloria Sequena um, on that day. And all she did was to go there to help her son register. And for me, that was such a terrible and heartbreaking story. At that time, I'd actually just given birth to my to my daughter, and I was a new mom. And it 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 hit, it was such an emotional story for me because. I was thinking to myself, I can relate to Mum Gloria. I can relate to her desire to do everything in her power to improve her child's life. And by the time her children were at UJ, this was a woman who'd already made huge sacrifices for her children to even be standing in that queue applying to register. And then because of the inequality, the continuing inequality in our educational system, she died because people were trying to access education. And it was a senseless death, in my view. Um, and and uh, it was very difficult reporting from the scene as the event happened, um, trying to stay on top of the situation. But at the same time, I learned so much about myself um, and and also uh, it, it, it hit home in so many ways because... Wow. As I said to you, it reminded me of this unfinished story, this uh, unfinished work that we still have to do as a country to really address inequality and access to education. Patrick, calling us from Ekon. Good evening. Thank you for calling. You are speaking to Ms. Pagamile Shubimajola. Go for it. Yes, good evening, Khadeva. Uh, yes, sir. Yeah, this is a Kinebe there. Oh, Kinebe. Go for it. Yeah, now my question um, to you, Pagamile. I mean, in Kingdom's Corner, that is the place historically was uh, under the sea sky. Um, there was an, this industrial area, Dimbaza. <laughs> People worked there, and I, I'm asking this question because <laughs> I learned that you were involved with NUMSA Union. There was a ridiculous formation called UNEU. Unemployed Workers Union. It was ridiculous, a mockery. I've, I've never heard of such a thing. I want you to throw your own critical insights as to why. Also, tell me, uh, tell me about that UNEU thing. What was the, the rationale for establishing such a mockery of a union? I've never heard of a, an unemployed people people being uh, under a union. Secondly, the the industrial area people uh, is no longer there. People are not working, but people in the rural areas were working there. Chinese people were investing there. There were uh, factories. And now in the so-called tripartite alliance, the ANC, SACP, and COSATU, what, why did they fail? Because for me, I thought the logic was because the, the union is there, COSATU, Federation. Therefore, it would be easy for them. I don't know how things are done. That they would go outside and say that we have in the industrial space. Come and invest in our country. And there I create employment opportunities. But uh, that was never to be. Even in others, Esikawini, Buchabelo, you name all of them. So why, your critical is, why did they, these chefs, mm-hmm. Yes. Got you. Thank you so much there, Patrick. Ms. Shubimajol, go for it. Uh, thank you for that question from Utata Nkosi, Patrick. Was it Utata Nkosi or Utata Patrick? Patrick Egon in King Williamstown. He's calling Oh, yes. I apologize for that. Dr. Patrick is enough, sure. So, I think, first of all, I, I'm not going to comment too much on, in fact, I'm not going to comment on Uneu. Unfortunately, I don't know enough about what happened there. Um, and I'd, I, I'd rather not comment. But let me comment on the issue of the alliance and, and why that was a problem. Um, and and you'll also know, comrade, that in 2013, NUMSA took a decision that it was going to no longer support the ANC government in campaigning. Um, and that decision was informed precisely by the fact that the working class had to come to a realization that aligning with the governing party was not working out. Um, if you consider even now up until today, 
where we are today in South Africa, where we are now the most unequal country in the world. Post-apartheid South Africa is the most unequal country in the world with uh, more than 46% unemployment. If you're looking at the expanded definition, um, high, high levels of poverty and the people who suffer the most, it's the black majority. Um, the same issues that we suffered under during apartheid, where we were struggling to access education, struggling to access quality health care, struggling to access um, quality housing. We're still fighting the same battles. We're still fighting to be free. And that is precisely because as long as the ANC government continues to pursue this path, where it is promoting capitalism, it is promoting a neoliberal outlook, and 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 it continues to protect the wealth of the white minority. If it, as long as that is the case, unfortunately, we are going to continue to suffer in this country. The only thing that's going to change our fortunes is to adopt um, a, a a a a a a framework, a policy, an agenda which is to the benefit of the masses, where we radically transform the economy. And I don't mean that in, you know, as a throwaway slogan used by the radical economic transformation faction of the ANC. That's just sloganeering. I think they've had more than 27 years to demonstrate if they're truly radical and they've shown us that they're not. Um, what workers want now, what the working class wants now is action. They're tired of empty words and empty promises. Sure, let's take one quick call before we really allow Ms. Paramilia Lubi Majola to actually do why she's actually on the show, and that is for her to engage Duma Gubule, who's an independent economist. Very quickly, let's go to Cape Town. William, good evening. Thank you so much for calling. Your comment or question to Paramilia, please. Hello, uh, good evening. Uh, this is a, I've listened, I'm listening now to the uh, discussion. This is a very interesting discussion. And what I'm saying is that I'm a, I'm a bit disturbed Really, I'm a bit disturbed because if you look here in the Western Cape, you know, you know who is the people are suffering now in the Western Cape is the colored people. And no one speaks about the colored people. You know, there are people this afternoon I was speaking to these people who squat their intent there um, um, just opposite the, uh, the castle. It's all colored people that has 27 years, 21 years. More than two hours on waiting lists for houses just to have to have the dignity to have a house. But the thing, but what, what, what is for me very wrong is that people from Eastern Cape comes and they are 22, 23 years old. They have houses before their people. Currently now there are over 3,000 houses that are standing empty, new built houses. For who is it? Houses waiting here in Blue Downs. Is it now waiting for the Eastern Cape people to come into the country and it's black people? And, and now the colored people stay in backyards. And there are some of the black people also in Google Earth that stay in, black, in, 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 in backyards. But they don't, they give the houses to the people from, from, a, from another province who come in, into, the, in, into the Western Cape. And I think it's very, very unfair. If you look in the colored community in Mitchell's Plain, if you look in the Cape Flats, you see you go into the, uh, power, the, the perestators from the government. You go into a home affairs, you go into uh, any government place, but you get William. 10 blacks and two colors, and we are the majority here. William. We are the majority in the Western Cape, but why? For the last five, six years, they're only giving the black people jobs, and our colored people getting gangsters sitting on the corner using drugs. William, I'm going to have to ask you to actually pose. I mean, okay, well, you, well, you haven't, but I was engaging you for a comment or question to Ms. Pagamila. I don't know if there was one to her, but nonetheless, Pagamila, how do you respond to that? Well, William, I think, first of all, I really would like to engage you on why, as a, a, a colored person, you feel somehow that you don't black. I think the one of the most painful things about where we are today is that members of the working class are turning on each other. Black people are suffering and colored people are black people and they are suffering too. Um, members of the working class in this country are suffering and as a member of the working class you would be experiencing this kind of frustration around access to housing 
This is one of the many problems. It's not just access to housing, it's access to healthcare, it's access to education. And, and unless and until we have a government that acts in the interest of all of us, that acts in the interest of the majority of people who are the working class, then unfortunately you are going to be misled, as you are misled now, into believing that people from the Eastern Cape are somehow foreign or foreigners uh, utilizing resources which are meant for you. Um, and this is precisely what happens when capitalism is in crisis, because capitalism is a system that is unable to provide genuine equality for everybody. It is only a system where a minority of people can live uh, comfortable lives. And this is ultimately the system that we need to start uh, dealing with. Yeah. Thank you. In William's comment, I heard a lot of Helen Ziller. I heard a lot of the Cape Town mayor, Dan Plato's comments that he has made before. Frankly, I also heard a bit of Mzwanele Mani as well. It certainly is a comment that merits a conversation and a deep discussion at that because I don't dismiss the sentiment behind what William is lamenting. Perhaps I might only have been offended, if that's the word even, by the kind of language he uses, but I certainly don't take away from what is his experience. And I do appreciate the comment as I do the response. It is 2040. We are slightly behind schedule and time. So let me just quickly confirm that my contribution, at least for this hour, is over. After the break, Mr. Dumagubule, who is an independent economist, will be fielding questions from our guest this evening, Ms. Pagamila Tlube. Everybody, please support. Johannesburg, 714-2006. Dial and dial now. The Viewpoint, 8 to 10 p.m. Turning conventional wisdom on its head. on SAFM. Good evening and welcome to SAFM. Thank you so much for joining us and for remaining to have this discussion that we're going to have with uh, Comrade Dumak Uwule, who is the, uh, an economist. And we're going to go into some of the issues that we want to deal with t- tonight. Please feel free to call us, to send us your WhatsApps, to give us your general con- comments or your just whatever, however you're feeling today and, and how you're feeling about what we're saying so that we can engage you this evening. So what I wanted to do, of course, I was taking full advantage of the fact that I have been offered a platform. And so I'm going to use this platform um, and I want to use it um, very selfishly for the benefit of our members and to discuss issues that I believe are affecting members of the working class, but in a way that presents them um, differently. Um, this is why I've invited Comrade Duma so that we can have this discussion. Are you on the line? Yes, I am, Pagamila. How are you? Thank you so much for the invite. Good evening, and thank you so much for making the time to be available. We really appreciate having you on with us. It was amazing listening to you talking. I was, I was feeling, I was. I was excited um, that I'm coming onto your show, but then I, I felt so inspired listening to you and your story, especially the one about the Mozambican Award, which I didn't know about. Yeah, yeah. Oh, thank you so much. So let's get right into it, um, uh, and let's talk about the latest op-ed that you had published in the Business Live, where you speak about how workers are bearing the brunt of public sector wage cuts. I would like us today to bust some myths about workers um, and in particular, uh, this very, very dominant narrative about the negative impact that workers are supposedly having, uh, whether it's SOEs, whether it's the GDP of this country and public sector wages. I want us to just get into that. So let's just start with that first issue. When I look at your article, for example, you talk about how Treasury has blamed workers for the economic crisis, but public sector employment has not kept up with the rise in population. You talk, for example, that it's very easy for lazy analysts to scapegoat workers for causing the crisis. And in your view, workers actually have very little to do with the crisis. Let's just talk, for example, at ESCOM, and I'm just going to throw one particular 
myth at you here. Myth number one. ESCOM employees earn an average of 773,000 each and their salaries are collapsing the SOE. What's your response to that? Okay, so a, a, a couple of years ago, I, I started looking into the whole issue of the state-owned enterprises because I felt um, ESCOM is becoming an economic policy issue. Um, so I looked at it, and then I, I looked at all the, in, the income statements, the financial statements of ESCOM since 2000, uh, the past 20 years, um, over one Christmas. And then what you find strangely, the ESCOM crisis starts around 2007. So I compared the ESCOM employee benefit costs in 2007 and 2020. And what I saw that really shocked me is that ESCOM employee benefit expenses declined from 23.6% of revenues in 2007 to 16.5% in revenues. But this, this was the only item on the ESCOM income statement that had declined over the same period as a percentage of the revenues of the company. But look at primary energy costs, they went up 8.6 times. And everything else went up by nine times, by 10 times, it was incredible. So I was asking everybody, you listen to the radio, they say ESCOM must cut its wage bill, but nobody says what must be done to reduce the other costs, which account for 97% of ESCOM's revenues. And that is your coal costs, your IPP costs, your interest costs that ESCOM is claiming. And then I did a little bit further. I said, what if we had to fire 25% of ESCOM workers and reduce the wage bill by 25%? It would not shift the dial. So the solution to the ESCOM crisis has got very little to do with the workers. The workers didn't cause this crisis. I even went to SAA, Paramila, and one of my great um, regrets is that I haven't really, I've been watching you um, fighting for the workers of SAA and I never found time to analyze this properly. But I looked at SAA and even at SAA, the employee costs were something around 18% of um, the last financial statements in 2017, it was about 18% of um, revenues of SAA. Nobody talked about the other 90% of ESCOM revenues, the costs that were bankrupting SAA. And I compared it with ComAir, I compared it with other airlines in Europe and whatever, and, and, the, East, and the, the ones in West Asia, what is Qatar Airlines, it was not out of it was almost similar to other airlines. Ethiopian Airlines was less than um, ESCOM, but most other airlines were, how can I put it, most other airlines were at the same level of the, the percentage of revenues. Yeah. So ESCOM work, I mean, SAA workers did not bankrupt SAA. ESCOM workers did not bankrupt ESCOM. So I'm just saying that people who've never looked at the financials of this company, the, what I call the lazy analysts, they go and they scapegoat the workers for every economic and financial crisis in South Africa. And this week, since Sunday, I've been, um, I was invited to the public sector wage bill talks um, in um, north of Pretoria. And it was quite an eye-opener for me because I first addressed all the, the unions, um, the three unions, um, the COSATI, PSA, and... Um, and what's the third one, yeah. FEDUSA. Yeah, FEDUSA. And then after that, I went and addressed the employers, and um, this was Department of Public Service, um, National Treasury, and so forth. And I explained to them that Treasury has been scapegoating the workers, blaming them for all of the country's economic problems, including our rising debt ratio. And I explained that public workers are not the cause of the economic crisis. Basically, if I look between 2007 and 2020, according to Treasury, the wage bill above inflation was 174 billion rands. That was only 6% of the increase in mm. the public debt. So what was happening over the past with the rising public debt is that the government was paying, was borrowing to pay interest. It had nothing to do with the public sector workers. And the other thing I noticed is that between 2000 and um, there was this thing called the occupation-specific dispensation. And the, between mm. 2000 and, I think, 2009, 2011, the, the, the government introduced better salaries for public sector workers. And the workers tell me that it wasn't a, a worker initiative. It was a government initiative because they were losing skills to the private sector. Nurses were leaving the country and 
doctors were leaving the country, so they had to improve the benefits that these people were earning. And once you take out that period when the occupation-specific dispensation um, was happening, so and then you look at from 2011 to 2020, what happened during that period is that um, the cost of the public sector wage bill as a percentage of total government spending went down over that period. Mm. So people don't look at that, those type of things. And the last thing I want to say, Paramila, is that people don't appreciate mm. the level of skill in the private, in the public sector. So I was looking at, um, you know, we've got doctors in health, we've got 157,000 highly skilled workers. I'm talking about doctors, pharmacists, medical specialists. Right. So yeah, so people have got this image of a pen-pushing public servant. But then I looked at... Um, We've got 20,000 doctors, about 5,000 medical specialists, and we've got 15,000 doctors. They account, they earn more than a million rand a year, and they account for 10% of the public sector wage bill. So those are the type of things that I do on a daily basis. I'm working, absorbed in this whole issue of the public sector wage bill this week, yeah. yeah. So the bottom line here is that the dominant narrative which puts workers and their salaries or their salary demands at the center of our crisis is false. Yes, yeah, and then the other thing that I noticed is that in the budget, in the October 20th, the, the medium-term budget statement, they announced, um, hundred, sorry, in the last budget in 2020, they announced 160 billion rand cuts to the public sector wage bill. Three months before, in the medium-term budget statement, they allocated 160 billion rands, the same amount to ESCOM. And one economist at the United University of Jobbik said, basically, the 160 billion was to pay for ESCOM. So they took money from the public sector workers to pay ESCOM. And quite frankly, that is not fair, that they should be punished for something that they, the, um, the teachers, the nurses, the policemen should be punished for something that happened at XCOM. It makes no sense whatsoever. Yeah. All right. At this point, we're going to open up the lines. Please call 011-714-2006 or you can WhatsApp your voice note to 0614-104-107. That's 0614-104-107 for the WhatsApp voice note. And for the line, 011-714-2006. I I love that you have very clearly outlined um, the fact that wage demands are not a problem. Can we also talk about this other myth? Unbundling ESCOM will improve its efficiency. What what do you say to that? Okay, so, okay, that's another difficult one. So let me just say, Unbundling introduces, so unbundling does not solve any of ESCOM's immediate problems, not even one. It doesn't solve ESCOM's operational problems. It doesn't solve ESCOM's um, financial problems. So ESCOM's major problem right now is um, their operational and financial. They need to get um, about 250 billion rand off their balance sheet. Now, there is no way um, unbundling solves that problem. And that's number one. The second issue is that this unbundling introduces complexity and that um, what um, the ESCOM reference group called the enforced chaos of liberalized um, energy markets. I believe strongly that, um, um, you, you're a socialist, um, um, I believe in a public, sec- um, public uh, involvement, uh, education, health, mining, energy, and finance. I believe in public ownership of both. Yeah. Let's let's just park there because I want to ask you about that, especially as an economist. Whenever we raise that as a demand, we're told that we're unrealistic, it doesn't work, public sector is inefficient, the private sector is efficient, um, we should have less involvement of the state, liberalize, let the private sector get involved and everything will be fine. That's what we're told when we present that argument. Okay, so people need to understand why ESCOM got into this situation. So again, I look at 2007 and I look at 2020. So the ESCOM, um, um, the, the former chairman of ESCOM is a guy called uh, Bobby Gotzel. 
And he wrote in the annual report in 2010, I think it was 2008, he said, it is not possible to fund the first major expansion of our electricity grid for several decades through revenue generated from tariffs alone. The growth of a business is normally funded by a sensible balance between owner's equity, the owner's contribution, accumulated reserves, and debt. We need to mobilize greater equity resources to fund the build program. So the build program since then has, was 640 billion rands. The, uh, the, now, you can't finance 640 billion rands just from tariff increases from NERSA. The government was supposed to capitalize it. So I don't use this word bailout. The government as a shareholder was supposed to capitalize it. Now, the whole discourse around privatization and saying that the government is broke, it's an agenda this is my previous column, just to create and privatization and profits for people. That's what I believe, yeah. yeah. And, and you and, know, and that's, you know what, that's, that's what, what we suspect as well, because if you look at what's happened lately, especially at ESCOM, where the renewable energy independent power producers are now assisting in the generation of electricity, it's very clear that they're privatizing a provision or the electricity provision um, uh, for the benefit of the private sector. But now we've got to go to a caller, Sydney in Aconhook Bushbuck Ridge. What do you have to say this evening? Oh, uh, comrade uh, Majola, I was touched by the illustration of your life profile by listening to Brother Sungezo. I was truly touched, and I didn't know you were behind the story of Medomasia. Uh, uh, it was that story that made me to fear our South African police. But then, I must say this, I'm a religious person, uh, his comrade. May you be blessed in whatever you wish to achieve in your life. I don't know how you perceive God to be, but can he reveal more in what you ever wish you to become in life, the things you cannot by yourself, can he make an added blessing? Because uh, that story of Medumasia, it was a reminder of how, uh, comrade, um, Biko, Steve Biko, was killed. And that done by our own police, doing exactly the quality that was needed on uh, Steve Biko. May you be blessed uh, for the John Comrade. You are actually qualified to lead a ministry in our country. In this absence of leaders with fidelity, you, may we all South Africans forward your name to run a particular ministry. Then we will know our resources as South Africans are safe on your hands. Uh, thank you so much. I'm I'm so humbled by what you're saying to me, um, Sydney. Thank you, thank you from the bottom of my heart. I really appreciate that. Uh, we've also got Umam Vuyiswa in Parktown North. Umam Vuyiswa, what would you like to say to us this evening? Yes, Comrade uh, Pagamire, how are you? I'm how well, you? thank you. How are you, Ma? Yes, ma'am? yes. Thank you for actually giving me this opportunity. I also. I think want to concur with the previous uh, speaker because I've known you to be a very competent comrade. I've spoken to you several times, and I love the humbleness that uh, you, you, you know, you demonstrate in your life. But I wanted to ask a question. You know, as a former exile, former countries, with someone who suffered from childhood through this uh, apartheid system, that actually I lost all my parents to the system. But the fact is that I, I feel like ESCOM has not been actually investigated or interrogated uh, 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 to, to the extent of exposing even those who were chairperson before this current past 10 years, because I believe they also looted and then nothing is being done. And I don't think the current uh, CEO at ESCOM is going to make any change because for me, electricity was not made for us as black people, but it was made for white people. Now, that's why there's so much mayhem because they don't feel, you know, comfortable with black people, you know, having access to electricity. You know, Mam so you make an excellent point, and it's an issue that even us as NUMSA we are raising, and we're raising even now in the wage talks with ESCOM, because ESCOM was created for the benefit of the white minority in this country. So why does our black government not use ESCOM for the benefit of the majority who are black in this country? And if we want real change, these are the kinds of decisions that we have to make, decisions that are driven 
to where we intentionally improve the lives of our people. The apartheid government did it to benefit the white minority. The black government must do it today. Um, on that note, unfortunately, I do have to go to, to news. Uh, Greg Hose, please. Uh, is he, Greg Hose is going to take us through uh, for the news headlines. Thank you. Welcome to The Viewpoint. Thank you so much for joining us. My name is Pagamile Shubimajola, Numsa National Spokesperson. No, it's not a coup d'etat. I've just taken over the slot for the next couple more minutes. Thank you so much for staying with us. Right uh, thank that. you for the news, Greg. Much appreciated. Now we're going to go back to the calls. We're going to take a call from Mike from Durban. Mike, are you there? Yes, uh, good evening. Uh, I'd like to ask one question. We know for a long time, for the last 10 to 15 years, I would say 10 years, that all the state-owned enterprises have been in trouble and there's been corruption there all the time, especially ESCOM. It's one of the biggest corruptions in the country. And uh, due to that corruption, now to make ESCOM work, they would have to retrench staff in order to become profitable and regroup and and, and fix the the company. But my argument is the unions have always been there. The unions knew all along of all the problems that's been having in the last 10 years financially. Every year, the unions have been fighting for the workers' wages, but they knew whether this company is making money or whether this company, this kind of corruption, has the power to change things. But they never do it. But they always come back and tell you that these companies can't afford to pay and they're doing this and that and they have to sort the workers and that kind of thing. But I've never heard of the unions getting involved to really, you know, to, to save these companies from going so badly down. Mike, I think I disagree with you there. Maybe you've just not been um, reading everything, but I'm not, I don't blame you. Um, because, as I say, the dominant narrative in the South African media is that we are not doing anything as, as trade unions. Uh, uh, speaking for NUMSA, for example, we've been at the forefront of exposing the rot and corruption at SOEs. At SAA Technical, for example, we went to court a number of times to force action on recommendations which were made in forensic reports about uh, steps that needed to be taken against executives and corruption and, and looting at that entity. We were ignored. We were ignored by the Department of Public Enterprises, which is the shareholder. We were ignored by the by SAA Technical Board and Management. The court granted us a, a court order for recommendations to be implemented. Uh, and we still had to fight to the nail for the company to, to implement some of those recommendations, most of which now, unfortunately, uh, if you look at the state of things, it it it, it seems um, it didn't make enough of a difference. As I speak to you now, Mike, NUMSA has filed papers at the Constitutional Court to force accountability from government on the collapse of SA Express. We are saying that SA Express cannot be collapsed by a liquidator in court. Parliament must be convened um, so, and, 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 and must look into this process. SA Express didn't collapse because of COVID. It collapsed because of the deliberate negligence of the Department of Public Enterprises, which drove it into the ground because of decisions that it took. And these are the things that are happening at state-owned entities. And NUMSA is definitely taking up the charge in these battles. We're also going to take a call from Linda uh, from Engobo. From Engobo, Linda, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Good evening. Uh, good evening, Pax. Uh, good evening, Mr. Kubule, and good evening to the listeners. I think I, I just want to agree with uh, with uh, your guest that there is a general laziness or naughtiness around the the analysis around SOEs. So, so for example, let me just state it clearly that when you look at ESCOM, ESCOM has no problem of operating uh, profit, right? Uh, and I want to agree with him that uh, primary energy costs 
are still a problem that pressurizes uh, the EBITDA, that is operating costs before interest. But if you look, for example, at, at last year, 2020 financial, right, ESCOM, uh, um, ESCOM registered 31 billion rand in EBITDA, that is operating profit before interest. But the ESCOM had to pay the same amount uh, that is 31 billion rand to, uh, on finance costs, right? Now, any analyst that is worth its salt would not place blame on the workers, right? It's clear that that's uh, uh, caused problems. One, on the on the above the line in terms of EBITDA, is energy primary is energy cost, but below the line of EBITDA clearly is the capitalization of ESCOM. ESCOM, okay. ESCOM has been overburdened by, uh, by debt. But, can you give me Linda, yeah? I am so sorry, Linda. I am going to have to cut you off. We have to go to an ad break. But your, your comment is noted where you highlight very clearly that the cost drivers are not workers' wages, but the cost drivers are elsewhere. Songhez Omapepe on SAFM. Ms. Lubi Majola, your time is exhausted. Um, you did threaten this was not a coup. At some point I was inclined to believe it actually had been. It's just that I was softened up by your very strong arguments and good words used. Well, final comments from you as you say goodbye to the listeners. How would you, if you like, summarize this particularly last segment that you and Duma would have held? Well, when I look at this segment, and I, and I first of all want to appreciate um, you, Songhezo, and thank you so much for allowing me to use this platform. Um, and also, for us, really, the main the main point for me was to get across the message that um, when it comes to the challenges that we're facing as a country, I think it's important that people must get the full picture, the fullness of what we're dealing with. Um, let's not allow ourselves to be misled to the point where we accept solutions that actually don't work for us. Yes, we are in a crisis, but let's find the right solutions to the problem. Let's not hurt those who are already vulnerable, who are already suffering. If we continue on this austerity trajectory which Treasury is taking us on, then we really are taking the country into a very, very bad space. And and I do appreciate the opportunity to at least present the full picture and and an alternative side to the story. Thank you. Certainly, we do appreciate your time and we can only wish you well as you continue to engage some of the most vexing questions in South Africa's labor space. So with that and more, thank you so much for your time and all the best. 21.14 is the time. That was Ms. Pagamile Tlubimajola, the spokesperson for NUMSA. It is now the time for the hashtag African narrative. And after the break, it's a conversation between myself and Mr. Bongani Mashlangu, who's a music and arts journalist. We're talking about and of Bob Marley.